From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Tuesday, November 27th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Protesters take to the streets in Egypt once again. We'll hear how President Morsi's power grab is unifying the opposition. And our correspondent in Cairo tells us about the difficulty she faces while covering the story. When it tends to get dangerous is after dark, and that's when you'll find yourself being groped and being followed and being yelled at. And later on the program, a rare bird flies to a new biopark in India. That is a red-crested pochard. They're a beautiful bird, and they come from Siberia. These stories ahead on the world. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The protests against Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi continued in Cairo today. Thousands of people took to the streets to show their anger at Morsi's decree, giving himself broad new powers and placing his presidency beyond the reach of the courts. The protesters didn't buy their president's vow yesterday to scale back the decree. Correspondent Noel King is in Cairo now. Noel, characterize for us what's going on in Cairo with the politics and the people. Well, the post-revolution period in Egypt has been a very difficult one, and there have been complicated political times because there are such deep ideological divisions in Egyptian society. President Mohamed Morsi's decree really exposed some of those divisions even further, because what it did is it separated even further his supporters who think that by grabbing these powers, it was in the spirit of the revolution, it was an attempt to protect the revolution and to protect the panel that is writing Egypt's new constitution. Egypt's Liberals feel exactly the opposite. They feel that this is the move of a dictator who is granting himself extraordinary powers at the expense of the Egyptian people. And, well, take us to the street then, because once again, just as was the case when the revolution began, the demands to ouster uh, Egypt's longtime ruler Hosni Mubarak, the gathering place for public sentiment is this enormous public park in Cairo, Tahrir Square. That's right. And this square today is dominated by Egyptian liberals and activists, by people who consider themselves in many ways to be the group that sparked or catalyzed the Egyptian revolution, but haven't seen much in the way of political influence or haven't managed to grab much in the way of political influence post-revolution because the Muslim Brotherhood has done so well in democratic elections. I was in downtown Cairo earlier today, and I was speaking to members of some of the liberal political parties who are trying to get themselves organized into some sort of coherent political opposition. Tahrir Square looks a little bit like it did during the Egyptian revolution. Banners are strung from the trees bearing messages like Egypt for all Egyptians. At the center of the square, there is a cluster of about 60 tents. In front of one tent sits Naguib Abadir, a member of the Liberal Free Egyptians Party. We are really proud that the Free Egyptians Party had the first tent erected in Tahrir Square a few days ago. But Abadir quickly adds that it isn't about who was here first. We are also very much aware that although we started it 
here in the square as one party. We are meeting with the different parties and forces on a regular basis, twice or three times a day, and coordinating our efforts. And that's what Egyptian opposition forces are trying to do today, coordinate. After the revolution, liberal and secular groups were plagued by internal squabbling, and the better organized Islamists and the Muslim Brotherhood easily rose to power. Now the opposition is seizing on Morsi's decree as a rallying cry. Several parties have united, calling themselves the National Salvation Front. The group includes political heavyweights like the former head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, Mohamed al-Baradai, and Amr Musa, former leader of the Arab League. Hisham Qasim is a secular liberal democracy activist. The last time I went to Tahrir Square as a participant was um, the day after Mubarak was ousted, 12 February 2011. But today... I am going out to join the protesters against Morsi. During Hosni Mubarak's rule, Qasim sometimes found himself advocating on behalf of Muslim Brotherhood members who were imprisoned on trumped-up charges. So when Morsi won the presidency, Qasim was prepared to give him the benefit of the doubt. Morsi's decree last week changed all that. At this point, I have reached a position where I think the Brotherhood are not political adversaries or rivals. The Brotherhood are a menace to the political process. They do not understand democracy. And the minute they felt that they were unable to operate democratically, this stupid move to try and simply push everybody out and take full power. Rallies in Tahrir Square by groups across the political spectrum are common now in Egypt, but some analysts say the secular opposition needs to do more than simply call for protests if they want to gain political influence. Yasser Hashimi is Egypt analyst at the International Crisis Group. I think it's wishful thinking for the non-Islamist opposition to think that going to Tahrir would simply help them help re-establish uh, their image as, uh, as a viable alternative to the Muslim Brotherhood. Ishimi says the opposition has some important lessons to learn about organizing, not just in urban centers like Cairo, but in Egypt's rural towns and villages. Unfortunately, the opposition has not learned the lesson, which is that they need to campaign widely. They need to establish bit of a geographical reach throughout the country. They need to basically reach out to people. They need to establish social bases. Um, they need to basically become a grassroots uh, movement. That means the secular opposition might want to take a page from the playbook of another former opposition movement, now in power, that appears to have done it best, Mohamed Morsi's Muslim Brotherhood. For The World, I'm Noel King in Cairo. Noel, I have a few more questions for you. It sounds like it's quite the harrowing situation in Tahrir Square. Could you tell us what it's like for you to be there uh, on the ground on a day like today as a journalist, but as a woman journalist? You know, I usually attempt to go to Tahrir Square in the morning when it isn't before it gets very crowded. Um, when it tends to get dangerous is after dark, and that's when you'll find yourself being groped and being followed and being yelled at. And I've had all of those things happen, and as a result, I do everything I can to avoid them. I do try to travel in groups. I do take along male companions who are either Egyptian or, um, you know, who are of Arab descent. Uh, so I stand out a little bit less. Um, but in every case, there is there is the threat that something will happen. And in more cases than not, it does, unfortunately. I wonder about the frequency, though, when you say that you go early in the morning to a place like Tahrir Square as you're reporting because you're worried about what might happen. For instance, today, did anything happen today? 
Today, I was followed on the bridge walking out of Tahrir Square. I was walking with an interpreter, uh, also a woman, an older woman, um, and two men followed us and, and yelled at us, and we actually picked up our pace and then we ran a little bit. And, you know, they chased us all the way across the bridge leading out of Tahrir Square. And we were very frightened. And, and that is not an uncommon experience anymore. That's something I would say happens to me about 50% of the time. We have run stories, certainly, of this kind of behavior in the past, and there are very well-known cases of, of uh, actual sexual assault. Is this different from what has been the case in Egypt through your reporting there uh, over the months? Well, the situation in Tahrir Square in particular is something that has gotten worse over the past couple of months. You know, sexual harassment in Egypt in terms of words being thrown around and, and even the threat of groping has been a problem for for many years now in Egypt. And I think everybody acknowledges that. And a lot of Egyptians are very disgusted by it. But these very violent assaults in Tahrir Square are something that has been happening really only since the Egyptian revolution. And I don't mean to blame the revolution or implicate the revolution what I mean to suggest is, first, there's less of a security presence. So there's just more of an opportunity for this to happen. Um, and secondly, the fact that, again, it's very hard to tell people's motives now when they're, when they're in the square. Unlike in the pre-revolution days, you have these massive crowds where it makes it very easy for a woman to sort of disappear into a group of people and, again, and, and not get out. And so that is something that really has changed. We also understand we should say that there are now groups of men that are apparently forming who are angry about the sexual harassment and basically uh, harassing the harassers of women. Yes, very well-intentioned men, I think, who are just so disgusted by the reputation that Egypt is getting as a country where it is very hard to be a woman, and who will say things, and I've, I've spoken to them before, who will say things like, I have a mother, I have sisters, this is completely unacceptable. And in particular, they're disgusted by the fact that it's happening in Tahrir Square, which is, to them, to many of these young activists, the birthplace of the Egyptian revolution. So what they will do is they will chase down harassers, they will yell at them. In some cases, they will slap them or spray paint them. And, you know, Egyptians, again, are divided over this kind of behavior. Is this noble? Is this chivalrous? Is this in its way a little bit humorous? Or is this just another example of young men acting out because there is no security force to protect anybody in Egypt at this point? Correspondent Noel King reporting from Cairo, Egypt. Thank you. Thank you. A pretrial hearing began today at Fort Meade in Maryland in the case of Bradley Manning. Bradley Manning is the soldier who allegedly released hundreds of thousands of classified documents to the website WikiLeaks. The U.S. Army private is due to be court-martialed on 22 charges, including aiding the enemy. But Manning's lawyers are asking for the case to be thrown out on the grounds that he has been mistreated while in custody. Outside Fort Meade today, a small group of protesters braved the rain to support Manning. Reporter Arun Roth is covering the hearing for the world and PBS Frontline. Who are among the protesters? Well, this is organized by the Bradley Manning Support Network. And I have to say, it was a pretty hardy group, Lisa, because it's miserable weather down here. It's literally freezing rain and sleet. And uh, these folks were out there by the side of the road at, at Fort Meade. It's a pretty diverse crowd. There are a lot of older people there, and I would say a lot of veterans as well, some of whom I, I spoke with. And they're just very passionate about this case, uh, uh, feeling that... that um, Bradley Manning is being treated unjustly, uh, that, that he should not be you know, put on, on court-martial, and, and especially the issues around his treatment and the fact that it's taken so long for him to go to trial. Um, they're, they're deeply upset about it. And at the hearing itself, Arun, what was it like seeing Bradley Manning in the courtroom? 
Well, it was it was interesting. I mean, this is everyone is excited here because we're expecting to hear from him this week. I mean, beyond the yes sirs and no sirs that he's been saying in the procedural uh, things that have gone on so far, he's expected to actually take the stand this week and talk about his treatment uh, while he was in custody, while he's been in custody. So there, there's kind of an energy around that. He looks more or less the same as, as the last time. It's a little bit difficult. The video can be a little bit grainy, the feed from the courtroom. But he's, he's there. He's alert, taking notes. And um, yeah, there, there's kind of a, a sort of a buzz about the, the proceedings today. And what happened in the proceedings? Not an awful lot. It was mainly procedural and scheduling issues. And uh, it's interesting. It's a little bit hard to follow, actually, with this case because of the level of secrecy around it. Things like the court docket or the motions that, that were, were being discussed today, we're only finding out about these things by extension. They're not made available in the way you would ordinarily expect them to be made available. I mean, I can compare this to the military commissions in Guantanamo Bay, and there's actually more transparency there from when I was there last in terms of being able to get court documents, the docket, and find out what's going on. So today was administrative stuff, but we will be getting to the testimony from from Manning and others later on this week. And and what's expected during that testimony? So what we'll be hearing, uh, some of the witnesses will be some of the people that were in charge of the prisons, uh, both in Quantico, Virginia, the Marine Corps prison, and Fort Leavenworth, uh, where where, uh, Bradley Manning was uh, was confined. Also, we'll be hearing from mental health experts from the defense to talk about his psychological condition. And uh, again, we should be hearing from Manning himself as he's supposed to be testifying. They're expecting maybe Wednesday or Thursday for that. And presumably testifying about how he was treated yeah, that that's front and center right here. These proceedings are is the issue of his treatment and what that means both for this trial, if it rises to the level of throwing it out or, you know, how it would be factored into considering his charges and ultimately his sentence. Bradley Manning's legal team has floated the idea uh, of a potential plea bargain. Any movement on that? No, there's been mention of uh, this attempt that his team is making called pleading by exceptions and substitutions, which is sort of a partial plea. Again, the thing that's difficult about this is is it's hard to figure out what's going on because we are not allowed to see the actual motions. We're not actually allowed to see the stuff that's being put in front of the court. All that we can do, the reporters that that are here, is sort of listen on the margins and, and try to keep track of it as best we can. Thank you very much, Arun Roth, covering the Bradley Manning hearing in Maryland for The World and for PBS Frontline. Thank you. Stay tuned to The World to find out why Toronto's mayor may soon be mayor no more and why even some of his fans have turned sour on him. That's coming up on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Mexico's president-elect, Enrique Peña Nieto, is just four days from his inauguration. Now, surely he could be busy in Mexico City preparing for the big day, but instead he chose to be in Washington today for a meeting with the newly re-elected President Obama. Peña Nieto says that he wants to refocus the relationship between Mexico and the U.S. He wants more emphasis on trade and economic growth and less on security and the drug war that has left some 60,000 people dead over the past six years. That shift could be a hard sell for many Americans, says Shannon O'Neill, who's a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. She wrote a recent column in USA Today that's entitled, Mexico Isn't a Gangland Gun Battle. Shannon, who thinks that that's what Mexico is? Well, it's interesting. It seems that the majority of Americans do think that that is what Mexico is. There's a recent poll that came out 
that polls U.S. citizens, when they were asked what they think about Mexico, they were asked about particular words, almost one in two said drugs. And a majority said they thought Mexico was a corrupt, unstable nation. So that is the view of the average American. Well, in fact, vast parts of Mexico are indeed poor. There is a thriving drug trade that makes parts of the place very unsafe. Your point, though, is that Americans need to recognize the aspects of Mexican life that look a lot like our lives here in America. It's not that Mexico doesn't have a security problem. It does. But there's another reality or other realities in Mexico that we miss in the United States. And one of those are the economic transformations we've seen in that country over the last 20 or 30 years. And what we have seen in Mexico is this boom in a middle class there. The other element where we've seen a deepening over the last 30 years is through people. And so today in the United States, we have 11 to 12 million Mexicans living here, half legally, half not legally. But we have 30 million Americans who have some Mexican heritage, Mexican Americans. And so what happens in Mexico affects those millions of Americans as well. So how should that influence, do you think, the conversation going on between the incoming president of Mexico and President Barack Obama? Because Enrique Peña Nieto wrote recently in an op-ed in the Washington Post that it's a mistake to limit the U.S.-Mexican bilateral relationship to drugs and security concerns. He said perhaps the most important issue is finding new ways to bolster our economic and trade relationship to attain common prosperity in our nations. How would you define that common prosperity? And then what happens to the issue of drugs, which is still paramount between the United States and Mexico? The security problem is an important problem. But what the newly elected Enrique Peña Nieto wants to do is put the economic issues front and center on the bilateral agenda. And that's actually important for both governments. We in the United States are now struggling to come out of a recession, and both President Obama and members of Congress from both parties have said the way to do that is to export more. Well, we found that tying ourselves to our neighbors, to Canada and Mexico, is one way to make our companies more competitive and be able to export around the world. Shannon O'Neill is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and she's the author of the upcoming book, Two Nations Indivisible, Mexico, the United States, and the Road Ahead. Thank you, Shannon. My pleasure. Fewer Mexicans have migrated to the U.S. in recent years, but thousands of young people from Mexico and Central America still try to get in each year, often illegally and often alone. Roxandra Guidi of Station KPCC has the story now of one young Guatemalan who made his way to Los Angeles. Death threats from the Maras, or gangs, in his native Guatemala are the reason Ronald Aldana says he left. The son of farmers from the rural Santa Ana region says it started when he was 16 years old. He was studying auto mechanics at a trade school when he heard that his cousin was murdered alongside a road. Aldana and his dad reported the crime to the police and helped with his burial. Within hours, Aldana started getting threats that escalated into attacks. Ya no pudimos. We just couldn't deal with it anymore. The first time they tried to kill me, I'd gone out to pick up some books, and as I headed home, a group of men on the street started shooting in my direction, but I jumped towards a ravine behind me. Aldana survived the attempts on his life, but his father decided it was time for him to leave, for good. My dad hugged me and said, Son, you know I love you, but you cannot stay here. I'd rather die than have you killed. 
Aldana resisted, but he was familiar with this kind of story, and he knew how it was likely to end. If the gangs target you, you'd better go. His older sister, who'd migrated to Los Angeles years back, said she'd pay the $5,000 smuggler's fee. Within a day, Aldana started his trek. Once in Mexico, he met other Central American migrants. They walked more, boarded long-distance buses. It took us a little more than two days to cross Mexico, too, because there was a lot of police around and also the Zetas, which are notorious for targeting migrants. I don't know if it's true because they didn't harm us, but that's what the Coyote would tell us. Once on the U.S. side, Aldana walked along a freeway under the hot sun with nothing but the disheveled clothes he wore. Then he spotted a crew of construction workers who offered him a lift as far as Las Vegas. But the drivers were also without papers, and they were stopped at a Border Patrol checkpoint. Agents detained Aldana. He told them the truth, that he was fleeing Guatemala's gang violence. The agents referred him to Kids in Need of Defense, a pro bono legal and advocacy organization, and transferred him to a children's shelter in Arizona. Kids in Need of Defense worked with the Federal Department of Homeland Security and the Office of Refugee Resettlement to fact-check Aldana's story and represent him in court. Eventually, the U.S. government granted him asylum. Kids who are represented by counsel are three times more likely to obtain relief from deportation. Kids in Need of Defense director Wendy Young says Aldana represents a big surge in kids who've arrived alone in this country during the last few years. Only a lucky few, she says, gain asylum. We primarily work with kids once they're released from custody. But I have to say, with the number of kids going through the system currently, I'm very concerned We already, KIND, has seen a spike in the number of case referrals we're receiving of 57%. Honestly, my office is being flooded. Groups like Kids in Need of Defense say young people like Aldana increasingly need legal help. Without it, they'll lose the opportunity for a fair hearing and risk being repatriated back to their home countries and the dangers they once fled. So each workshop... We've dealt with personal skills. Alex Sanchez is a former Salvadoran gang member who runs Homies Unidos, an anti-violence program in Los Angeles. He says that war, poverty, and natural disasters have caused young Central Americans to leave their countries for decades. But these days, Sanchez says, the main push factor is rising gang violence. They try to seek these asylum cases in which they get attorneys to fight a case, and, and, and usually they say, you know, that, that they were forced recruited, that they were targeted by local gangs, or that they were targeted by law enforcement thinking that they were in gangs. So these are people that, you know, that we see here often that are fleeing the gang violence down there, both perpetrated by the gangs and the government. More than three years after crossing the border, Ronald Aldana is now 20 years old. He lives with his girlfriend and her family. Soon, he'll look for a way to bring his parents and siblings in Guatemala here, too. But that won't be easy. First, he'll need to prove that he has the financial means to support them all. For The World, I'm Ruxandra Guidi, Los Angeles. This is PRI. Lisa Mullins, a friend of the great Malia musician Neba Solo, says the country's troubles are taking a toll on the man. The first thing I noticed was that he had lost weight, and he said it's 
and quietude, nervousness and kind of fear for the future. The conflict in Mali quiets musicians there, but not completely. Our story coming up on The World. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH in Boston. The remains of Yasser Arafat were exhumed today from his West Bank mausoleum. The Palestinian leader died eight years ago in Paris. The official cause was a stroke, but his widow requested that his body be exhumed to determine if Arafat was actually murdered. Many Palestinians believe that Arafat was poisoned by Israel. Israel denies it. Today, tissue samples were taken from his remains. They were given to three teams of forensic experts from France, Switzerland, and Russia. They're going to study the samples separately and then report their findings back in a few months. James Stars is a professor emeritus of law and forensic sciences at George Washington University. I wonder, you are not part at all of the Yasser Arafat exhumation, but I wonder what you think the important techniques are in order to determine if someone has been poisoned. A pretty standard routine. The difficulty, first of all, is how much tissue do we have and, of course, whether the poisoning was long-term or not as, for example, in the case of Napoleon being poisoned with arsenic over the long haul. Arafat, he was sick for a long period of time, but was he being poisoned for that period of time? Because the longer the process, the more the likelihood is that the poison will be retained in the bone. If it's cyanide, for example, that's easily detectable by reason of the aroma. It smells like burnt almond. Uh, But there are so many different exotic and unique poisons available that it's a very serious question as to whether or not the poison can be detected. Uh, You want to be absolutely certain you get soil samples from in and around the area where the person has been buried. Of course, it could well be that there is some toxic substance in the, uh, the ground that could leach into the remains of the individual. Do you expect there could be a certain answer to whether or not Yasser Arafat has been poisoned? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. There's no question that it's probably one of the most difficult uh, issues uh, in forensic science, and that is trying to determine from an exhumed remains. I turn my head away when I hear about poison, because poisoning is, is the easiest way to kill somebody and get away with it, and it's the hardest item to detect upon exhumation. Which is the best story that you have, the story that you are most fond of regarding one of the exhumations you've done? Jesse James being the first in a long line uh, always stands out as as being my most outstanding, if only because during my presence at the scene when we were exhuming the bones and only the bones, everything had disintegrated more than 100 years after he had died. My research assistant with me pointed to the fact that he was buried in a very unorthodox way. He was buried face down. Now, that's not the traditional way of burying someone. They're generally buried face up. 
for the purposes of Christian and other similar uh, countries. So that we uh, were very surprised, and we had to ask people, why would he be buried in that fashion? And most people said that's because the people who buried him wanted him to see where he was going. Uh, when I was at Glasnevin Cemetery in Dublin, and I asked a similar question, and that is the east-west orientation of the body upon burial, which is, again, the traditional way of doing it in the Anglo-American custom, because of the view that upon the second coming, the body has to rise to greet Christ, uh, and that means that the head has to be at the west end, because Christ would come from the east end. However, they said that they would do it just the opposite at Glasnevin, and I said, why? Because there are some people who want the second coming comes, they want to rise and face a different person or place. I said, such as, he said, the people who want to come up on the east-west as opposed to the west-east want to rise and see Duffy's Tavern, (laughs) because that's where they spend most of their time. James Stars is Professor Emeritus of Law and Forensic Sciences at George Washington University. He has taken part in many exhumations. Thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. We're in search today of a major river in Asia for our geo-quiz. It forms in the high glaciers of the Himalayas. Then it flows more than 800 miles across northern India. Along the way, it becomes the largest tributary of the Ganges River. Some Hindus believe that bathing in these sacred rivers frees one from the torments of death. Unfortunately, parts of the river we want you to name today are badly polluted. In some places, especially where it flows through the city of Delhi, the ecosystems on its banks have been all but destroyed. There is a glimmer of hope, though. We're going to hear about that and reveal the name of our river in just a couple of minutes. First, though, we're going to head in a different direction. Many Americans love to visit Canada. They love Vancouver or Montreal. Thing is, you don't find a lot of people who go crazy for Toronto. The city's not exciting enough, some might say. Well, look again. Toronto's got a dose of crazy going on up there right now. Laurie Goldstein is a columnist for the Toronto Sun. And, Laurie, the craziness that we're referring to is political. Toronto Mayor Rob Ford, who has just been ordered out of office. What's going on up there? Well, a judge has ruled that um, Mayor Ford, because he voted at council on an item in which he had a financial interest, is disqualified from holding office. He's given him 14 days to get his affairs in order and for the city to get its affairs in order. But under the judge's ruling, after 14 days, he's no longer the mayor of the city of Toronto. Okay, and he says he's going to fight that. But let's unpack the issue here a little bit. Mayor Ford of Toronto solicited funds back when he was a councilman, not mayor. He solicited funds using city letterhead, asking for money, contributions for the high school football team that he coaches, I believe, for this football program. So he says, look, this was money solicited for kids. The thing is, among those who then made donations were lobbyists and corporations to the tune of, what was it, like $3,000, I think? $3,150. Okay. So who said that he should pay that money back? It was the city's integrity commissioner. And um, she said that the money needed to be paid back because it had been on, the appeal had been made on council stationery. Uh, eventually, this all came to council. 
and there was a vote on whether the mayor would have to pay it back or not, because it was a recommendation to council that the integrity commissioner made, and the council voted, no, he doesn't have to pay it back. At that time, Mr. Ford spoke on the issue, and he voted on it. And that's a contravention of our Municipal Conflict of Interest Act, which says a politician can't vote on something in which he has a financial interest. I mean, didn't anybody realize that at the time? Did he? Yes. Uh, Mayor Ford, who is a stubborn sort, was warned repeatedly, up to and including by the Speaker of Council before he voted, that he shouldn't vote. I guess the, the strength and the tragedy of Mayor Ford is that the very thing that makes him attractive to many of us as a leader, and uh, our paper did support him, and I support his agenda, which is very fiscally conservative, is that he's like a bull in a china shop. When he wants to get something done, he gets it done. And on his agenda, he's already fulfilled most of his agenda uh, halfway through his term. He's kept taxes low. He's uh, achieved labor peace and substantial savings uh, by contracting out city work. But having said that, as a councillor, he was always a lone wolf. He always operated on his own. He didn't take advice. And uh, he didn't do that when he became mayor. So he ignored repeated warnings from all kinds of people that while it might not sound significant that you've only raised $3,150, a man's a millionaire, by the way, through his family business, uh, you can't vote on this issue because of the way the act is worded. He thought he knew better, he voted, and now he's paying the consequences. Well, I wonder what's next for the mayor of Toronto, uh, whose tenure is going to be short-lived right now. Presumably he's not going to go down without a fight. I wonder if he is going to go down with your support, since you supported him previously, and say that he managed to get an awful lot done on his agenda in a relatively short period of time. Oh, yeah. No, um, my paper today editorially said, and I agree with it, that we want him to use every legal means that he has at his disposal to get this decision overturned. And actually, the judge was quite sympathetic, and he said the problem with this law is that I I have to find that he did vote on a matter in which he had an interest. And because of the law, which is badly written, the only weapon I have is to dismiss him from office. My attitude is that the way you elect or defeat a mayor who has not been accused of any crime is an election. This mayor was voted in favor of by hundreds of thousands of people. And to me, his transgressions, and, and he's the author of his own misfortune. He shouldn't have done what he did. But to me, the punishment here just does not fit the crime. Okay, thank you. Laurie Goldstein writes a column for the Toronto Sun newspaper. We've got a link, Laurie, to your recent profile of the man who may soon become Toronto's ex-mayor at theworld.org. Nice to speak with you. You too. We are looking for the name of one of India's most important rivers for our geoquiz today. It is the one that flows through the capital region of Delhi on its way to join the Ganges to the east. The answer is the Yamuna River. Like many of India's rivers, the Yamuna is badly polluted, and many of the natural areas right along its banks in Delhi have been destroyed. But now some local scientists say restoring the river's floodplain is a key to restoring the health of the city itself. And they've begun by creating what they're calling a new biopark. Here's the world's Ritu Chatterjee. This is a rare thing in Delhi these days. The cacophony of hundreds of birds gathered in and around a pond on the northern edge of India's sprawling capital region. Wildlife biologist Fayas Khutsar of Delhi University points to a duck with a bright orangish head and a red beak. That is a red-crested pochard. They're a beautiful bird and they come from Siberia. Over 5,000 migratory birds come here. There are year-round residents as well, like the jet-black cormorants perched on a tree in the middle of the pond. Beyond the pond, there are undulating fields of grasses and woodlands, each with its own mix of wildlife. 
This 400-something acre piece of urban wilderness feels timeless, but it's actually a restored landscape called the Yamuna Biodiversity Park. As name suggests, it has something to do with Yamuna. Yamuna is the river that flows through the city of Delhi. And the park is located on part of its floodplain. Both the floodplain and Yamuna itself have been badly degraded by rapid urbanization. The loss of green space has squeezed out most of Delhi's wildlife. And Khutzer says it's also had a huge unintended impact on the quality of life of humans. There are dust storms in summer. You see, there's lack of water. He says the new park is part of a plan to help reverse some of these trends by restoring the natural services that the floodplain used to provide. Restoring this system back to its pristine glory is the only answer to getting these ecosystem services. The idea of ecosystem services is relatively new here, and this park is the first of its kind in urban India. It's being created on former agricultural land that's now too waterlogged to build on. Project organizers convinced the Delhi government to buy the land and let it go back to nature. One of the priorities here is to restore the natural ebb and flow of water across the floodplain. And that is the source of groundwater for the people living along the riverfront. That's ecologist C.R. Babu, who led the fight to reclaim the land. He says development along the Yamuna has destroyed the once abundant wetlands that filtered water and filled the aquifers. But we are trying to bring back those wetlands. Babu says park managers have already created three wetlands. And he says this park is just a start. He's got bigger dreams of more parks all along the Yamuna. You will have a network of forests grasslands, which are interspersed with the variety of wetlands. Ultimately, Babu believes those restored wetlands could hold enough water to meet all of Delhi's needs. And he expects the parks to provide other ecological services for the metropolis as well. He says they could treat sewage, soak up CO2, and perhaps even have a noticeable impact on Delhi's climate. These forests, along with the wetlands, would make Delhi much more milder. It will be a model for the way we can actually do things if we were to take it up on a much larger scale. That's ecologist Ghazala Shahabuddin of Delhi's B.R. Ambedkar University. She says the new park is a sign of growing environmental consciousness within the local government. But she's sceptical whether the change can really alter the course of development here. The kind of development that is planned on the Yamuna banks, for instance, and that has already partially been done, it really doesn't augur well for the river. But the creators of the Yamuna park remain hopeful. They point out that the city has already agreed to start planning a broader network of parks. Whether or not the new park is the start of a fundamental change, one thing's for certain. It's already changing life for some local residents. Back at the park, a scientist points out a patch of dry, thorny acacia trees to a group of college students. So this is very good nesting and perching side of the small birds. The park isn't yet open to the general public, but it is to educational groups. Instructor Reshma Narwani says she's surprised by how fresh and clean the air is here. She says it's also the first time she's seen water bodies in Delhi that are not polluted. She says she loves that the ponds here don't smell and aren't covered in scum. Narwani adds that the new Yamuna Biodiversity Park is the best possible way to introduce her students to what's been lost in Delhi 
and what might yet be recovered. For The World, I'm Ritu Chatterjee, Delhi. You can see some photos of Delhi's new biopark there at theworld.org. Extremism in Mali and musicians' response still ahead on The World on PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Our lives are full of copyrights. Seems everything is protected these days, from a piece of software to a piece of architecture, but not book titles. The World's Language Editor Patrick Cox has been looking into this, and Patrick, this made for a lot of confusion for you recently when you were searching for a particular book. That's right, yeah. I was looking for a novel called Pure, um, and I'd read an online review of it, but I couldn't remember the name of the author. He was a Brit. That's all I remembered. So I went onto Amazon and searched under books for Pure, and I discovered that just this year, there are four novels with the title Pure. One is set in Thailand, one is set in Paris, one is set in the future, and one is set in teenager land. And one of those was the one that you were looking for. It was indeed. But if I, we'd gone a little further back, yes. there would have been scores more published before 2012. Well, if it were a number instead of a title, then you might want to play it. Uh, <laughs> in this case, though, it seems as if pretty much any writer can recycle any old title. Is that the case? That is the case, and they do. It's completely fair game. So you have a novel like uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky's The Double, which has been recycled again and again as a book type. It's a great title, and, and authors have made use of it. Twilight is a popular title too, not just for the recent series. A nemesis, Philip Roth, was not the first writer to use that title, and he certainly won't be the last. There's a biography that's come out of music and TV mogul Simon Cowell called Sweet Revenge. Uh, that is also the title of at least 15 romance novels that have been published in the past couple of decades. By the way, is this done intentionally to try and mess with people who are book buyers because maybe one will pick up a book and uh, think that they're picking up a book by Dostoevsky or Philip Roth when really they're not? I think in certain cases it is. Um, you can buy, for an example, an e-book called The Vampire with the Dragon Tattoo. Ah. Does that remind you of anything? Yes, of course. <laughs> but there are some protections. Um, not under copyright, but under trademark law. The Harry Potter books, for example, they fall under this partly because they're a series, partly because they're also a movie series. And of course, there's all of that merchandising. Now, this brings up another point because ebooks are becoming increasingly popular. So you would think there might be more titles out there or at least more repeated titles. Well, one would hope there would be more titles. And, and, and I should say that there is this counterexample of books that spawn more than one title. When they're translated, uh, they may be translated more than once into the same language. Well, let me give you an example of a book from 20 years ago from Denmark. This was translated in most parts of the English-speaking world as Miss Smiller's Feeling for Snow. And the U.S. version was actually much snappier. Smiller's Sense of Snow, a huge seller it was too. And that's the world's Patrick Cox. There is a discussion of many more recycled book titles in the latest World in Words podcast from Patrick. Also a conversation with novelist Tom Wolfe about his experiments with punctuation. Just go to theworld.org. Thank you, Patrick. You're welcome, Lisa. Finally today, Mali in West Africa is a country that's been called the New Afghanistan because it's become another safe haven for Muslim extremists. So any talk of military intervention is loaded, and yet that's what's on the table right now. Today, the French foreign minister met with Mali's prime minister to talk about military plans to dislodge Muslim extremists from the north of Mali. For a country where music is so central to life, this crisis has quieted musicians in a big way. 
but not completely. Here's the world's Marco Werman. If you look at a map of Mali, it's basically two countries. The conflict zone is two-thirds of Mali, all in the north. Muslim extremists have imposed Sharia law there. In the south, it's a different country. Take musician Neba Solo. His home village of Nebadugu is in the south. And he says there, there's no violence. Neba Solo says things are calm. There's no problem in Nebadugu, even though the troubles in the north do concern us, he says. Neba illustrates that with a proverb. The elephant, like Mali, is big, but even a problem in his foot will cause troubles for the whole body. Some who know Nebasolo well would say that parable applies to Nebasolo, too. Ingrid Monson is a music professor at Harvard. For years, Monson's been following Nebasolo's career. When Nebasolo arrived in Boston this week for a performance and discussion of his music in Mali, Monson knew right away that things with him were not okay. He's lost weight. The first thing I noticed was that he had lost weight, and he said it, it's anxiety. <laughs> Um, nervousness and kind of fear for the future. Neba Solo is 43. His instrument, the balafon, is a wood xylophone whose sounds are amplified by resonating gourds. It's played widely in Mali and across West Africa. Neba Solo was born Suleiman Traore, but when his talents on the balafon became known, he took his stage name, Neba from his hometown of Nebadugu, Solo because he can, like no one else. Here, Nebasolo interlocks balafon rhythms with his brother, Siaka Traore. That performance happened last night at Harvard. Professor Ingrid Monson had been planning earlier this year to visit Mali and continue her research on Nebasolo, but the coup last March and ensuing violence in Mali changed her plans. So instead, she got Nebasolo to come to Harvard. The hall was packed. The evening was an introduction to an incredible musician. But Americans also seemed to be waking up to Mali's confusing and consequential situation, in part because Malian music appears under threat. Ingrid Monson says right now, though, music is one of the last concerns for the Malian government in the capital, Bamako. The government is barely in control. Um, They need to have an election. Um, There are a lot of police on the streets in Bamako. There is a great deal of uncertainty. The worst part for people who are poor already is the the price of uh, basic foodstuffs for living has gone way up, and it's made life very difficult. Despite the depressing situation in the south and the north of Mali, Neba Solo says music is not dead. It's the moment right now that is dead, he explains. Neba says that there is no activity, nothing's happening in Mali. And if there's no activity, says Neba Solo, there's no art. Me and other musicians were trying to pull together through the crisis. But the crisis also means that the ceremonies and parties that musicians typically get gigs for, they're not happening, he says. So we sit around with nothing to do. Les 
Not entirely true, though he hasn't recorded it yet. Nebasolo has written this song, Jenkafu, which means reunite us. Nebasolo sings to Malians to have confidence in the future of their country, not just through talk, but through action. He believes a song, in this case Jenkafu, can make a difference. For the world, I'm Marco Werman. <laughs> Give yourself a treat and see Nebasolo performing live. We've got a video at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Lisa Mullins. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI, Public Radio International.